chapter 7 here this week. Um, social media. I don't know how many of you have seen some of the accounts out there, like you had one job. That's one of the accounts, like it has all these insane simple things that were supposed to be done and never happen. And the title is, you had one job and you failed to do that one job. I don't know if you've seen those life hack videos out there, like the kitchen ones where, you know, you've got the overhead camera and someone's kind of showing you all these different life hacks you could do. If you cut open a bottle of toothpaste and turn it this way and then turn it that way, you can use it to like make kitchen pots to cook your chicken in. Like these insane life hacks. I don't know if you've ever seen them. But it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of wild how with some of those life hacks, you look at them and you think, that's absolutely ridiculous. There is no way cutting open a bottle of toothpaste this way and then using it in such and such a fashion is going to produce this kind of amazing result that has nothing to do with toothpaste, right? We've seen those videos. You know what I'm talking about. And we've all had that experience of sitting there and watching like, there's no way. There's no way this works. And then, of course, being the curious people that we are, you have to try it, right? You sit there, you're skeptical, this is, this is absolutely ridiculous, but hey, I've got 30 minutes of free time, so why don't we go and give it a shot, right? And come to find out, as ludicrous as some of these life hacks are, some of them work, don't they? That's, that's kind of the point of the passage today. That's kind of what is happening in this text as Jesus goes from this feast of booths, or, well, really, this gathering with his brothers in, that, in which they're telling him to go up to this feast, and he says, nope, not my time, I'm not going to go yet. And he goes later on his own, privately, and you know the story from last week. And he goes and enters the temple and begins to teach, begins to teach, and we have this whole experience, or this, this whole narrative is a better term, but this whole narrative in which these people are kind of listening to him and like, this is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. This is ludicrous. You are demon-possessed, they say. And Jesus' basic response is, you don't know because you haven't tried it. You haven't seen this to be true, right? Like these life hacks that you go onto Instagram and TikTok and see. We think they're ludicrous. We think they're absolutely ridiculous. We think, we'll never do that. I will never do that. And then we do it and we find out, wow, it worked. That's actually something I can do and it helps. It's exactly what we're going to see today. So our text, John 7, 14 to 24. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will... He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. 
Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for your word. Lord, feed us by your word. Feed us and nourish us so that we may be conformed into the image of your Son, our Savior, for our good and for your glory, Father. Feed us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as I said last week, I'm trying this new thing with this sermon summary. A sermon summary, putting it right up front so you know exactly the point we are driving at this week and then you can judge me later if I actually made those points or not but here is the sermon summary this week and it's longer it's lengthier here it is the teaching of the word capital W Jesus right the logos John 1 the word the teaching of the word is utter foolishness to the world utter foolishness it falls beyond the bounds of their comprehension because the source lies beyond our fallen humanity's state and spiritual condition so the teaching of the word is utter foolishness to the world it falls beyond the bounds of their comprehension because the source lies beyond our fallen humanity's state and spiritual condition and the second part to grasp it to grasp the teaching of this word one's heart and will must be conformed to the will of the source the source of this teaching to grasp it one's heart and will must be conformed to the will of the source of the teaching being conformed to this image alters one's thought and one's deed. Being conformed to this image alters one's thoughts and one's deeds. Now, just a reminder of where we came from so we know where we're going. The Feast of Booths is happening. The sixth seventh month of the Jewish calendar, this harvest festival, right? The, 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 the festival of Feast of Ingathering as it's referred to in Exodus, Feast of Booths as it's referred to in Leviticus, this wilderness wandering celebration in which they are remembering the 40 years of wandering. They spend eight days living in tents to commemorate the 40 years of living in tents. They celebrate the bringing in of this harvest as that time of year. Remember, September, October, depending on the calendar. 
And he has this conversation privately with his brothers that is recorded where they tell him to go, go to the festival. If you want to be well known, if you want to be the person you say you are, you can't do so privately, they tell him. You have to go up and perform these things publicly. Let people see you. And Jesus tells them, right, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. I am not yet going. Now we must understand this my time has not yet come thing because if we don't grasp that, we will find it very weird that my time has not yet come and now in the middle of the week, he's going to plop himself, plop himself into the middle of the temple and begin teaching. Right? If we don't get what the one means, we'll be very confused as to why Jesus is publicly teaching in the middle of the temple in a giant feast day. So remember, my time has not yet come, meaning it is not yet time for me, Jesus, to reveal my glory, which he will do on the Mount of Transfiguration, and which he will ultimately do at what point? His crucifixion and his resurrection. It is not yet his time to reveal himself in glory by his arrest, his murder, his resurrection. That's what he's saying. But he goes. He goes up to the festival. We had this part last week. He overhears the crowds chattering and murmuring. The Jews, the religious authorities, remember we got to separate these two groups of people, the Jews and the people in the texts of John, the Jews being the religious authorities, the people being the crowds, the population. The Jews are out looking for him. Where is he? Where is Jesus? Why is he not here at this feast? Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? The people talking, yeah, he's, I heard, he's a good guy. I've seen him. He fed me. He's, he's a good dude. Some people saying, no, he's, he's a lunatic. He's leading people astray. He's, he's dangerous. He overhears these conversations. He overhears all of these things people say as he wanders through the crowd privately, as he goes up to the festival. And so today, we get to this point, the middle of the week, probably a Wednesday, Thursday-ish, the middle of the feast, as verse 14 tells us. Jesus goes up into the temple and begins teaching. And here is where we are. Here is where we are. Another moment in which we have Jesus engaging with the religious authorities, teaching in an authoritative manner, not the first time we've seen it. Our first point. Jesus' teaching and wisdom... We're in accord with the Father's will, as led by the Spirit. Today, this remains the plumb line for teaching and for truth. Point one, Jesus' teaching and wisdom were in accord with the Father's will as he was led by the Spirit. And today, this remains the plumb line for teaching and for truth. Verses 14 to 16. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began to teach. And the Jews marveled, right? These are the religious authorities. The Jews marveled. They're in awe. They are shocked at what they are hearing and what they are seeing. How is it that this man has learning, or to put it in the original translation, how is it that this man knows his letters? You'll see the little 
fine print in some of your Bibles at the bottom translating that. How is it that this man knows how to read and can teach this, right? You imagine your high school teachers, your elementary school teachers, if they didn't know how to read, your schooling would be more difficult than it is already, right? Their information comes from a source, and that source is often a textbook or a teacher's manual. This Jesus hasn't done a lot of proper schooling. How is it that this man knows his letters? How is it that he knows these things when he has never studied? Is what they say, what they ask. And so Jesus, he answers them and he says this, my teaching is not mine. It's not mine. I didn't come up with this. I didn't make this up on my own. I didn't go to the library and develop my own theories on these things. My teaching is not mine, but it is his who sent me. And this should bring echoes back of John 6 when he said, I am not here to do my will. I'm here to do the will of the one who has sent me. Everything Jesus does, right? We talked about this last week going up to the feast. Everything Jesus is doing is according to the will of him who has sent Jesus which is the Father. And so we have this wisdom that he possesses, this authority that he bears in his teaching. It is in accord with the Father's will. He enters the temple. He begins to teach. He walks up to the stadium, or the stadium, the podium. And he opens the scripture. He does Isaiah and some other passages. He opens the scriptures. He reads and he teaches. And they are shocked. How is it that he knows how to read? How is it he can teach in such an authoritative and wise manner when he has never been taught? When he has never studied? Jesus is really beginning to draw the ire of the authorities at this point. And as we see, as I said last week, the tension that is going to arise this week... And from going forward is because of this Sabbath thing. That's not the only reason, but that's what starts the fire. That's what lights the match that begins the fire. Is this Sabbath issue. So he's teaching. They're shocked. We read Hebrews 5 a few minutes ago. right? And I mentioned as we were reading... This trifold office of Christ. The threefold office of Christ. Prophet, priest, and king. Hebrews 5 is very clear in delineating and telling us that one of those offices, one of those tasks that Jesus had is to be a great high priest. To be an intermediary. To be a one who offers a sacrifice on behalf of people whom he represents. His priestly office and here we see as Jesus enters this temple he is fulfilling which one he is now fulfilling the prophetic office Hebrews 1 tells us this what does Hebrews 1 tell us going back to us reading that a few weeks ago going back even farther to the sermon that I believe Jeff preached long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets you think of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, and then you think of those who came later. You think of Daniel and Ezekiel and Hosea and Micah and Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of these guys. 
A long time ago, God spoke to us by the prophets, those people, those men. But the author of Hebrews continues, but in these last days, referring to this time of writing, but in those last days, and now, now as well, but in those last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now it doesn't say Jesus the prophet, but that's exactly what this is referring to him as. as. A prophet is not one who is a fortune teller. A prophet is not one who tells the future for the sake of convenience. A prophet, biblically understood, is one who speaks the words of God. He delivers God's word to God's people. Many times and in many ways, long ago, God spoke to his people by the prophets, the Old Testament people who we see. But today... These last days, he spoke to us by this final prophet, this last prophet. And just like the great high priest, this great prophet, the greatest prophet. And here we see Jesus doing just that, fulfilling this role of prophet, coming into the temple, the place of religious life, the hub of religious life and religious teaching, and delivering God's message to the hearer. Proclaiming God's word, proclaiming God's truth. And everybody is shocked as he does and performs this teaching. So Jesus, Jesus in his role as prophet was delivering to them not his own words. Not what he wanted to share. Though it was what he wanted to share because his alignment was exactly the same as the Father's. But he was delivering to them the words of the Father. These are, this is the teaching of him who sent me, verse 16 tells us. This is a source beyond even the most authoritative books ever written. Right? Whatever the authoritative texts were of Jesus' time, and I'm not specifically referring to the Old Testament, because those are God-inspired words from God, but whatever library books they might have had, whatever textbooks were written by the rabbis and the Jewish authorities, this teaching is greater than that. Right? Think of Think of your favorite books or those most renowned Christian theological texts, those ones that you can stop doors with, Calvin's Institutes. Beautiful book, humongous book, filled with great truth, filled with great wisdom, John Calvin's Institutes. My favorite systematic theology, Oliver, uh, uh, Louis Burkhoff's systematic theology, the Dutch Reformed theologian, beautiful book. I use it all of the time. Charles Spurgeon's sermons, he, wasn't, he didn't write books. His sermons were compiled into books, but his sermons, you go pick them up off the shelf and you read them and your life can be changed by 
those sermons. Same with Martin Lloyd-Jones, my favorite. Again, didn't write books, wrote sermons that were turned into books. You go pick those up, his series on Romans that lasted like 20 million years, 20 million volumes of all of his sermons on Romans. Life-changing. Life-changing. My desk right now, I have two big volumes of the works of Jonathan Edwards, my favorite American theologian. Amazing books. The works of someone more modern, Jim and Sam Renahan, father, son, 1689 Reformed Baptist theologians. Jesus' teaching here supersedes the authority of even these books that we turn to to enlighten ourselves. You see, his source is the, capital T-H-E, the source. Whereas our great heroes of the faith found their source in him, as we should in Jesus. Jesus found his source in his triune community with the Father and the Spirit from eternity past. You see, Christ's source material far superseded any humanly developed, humanly written source material. So why were these Jewish authorities shocked at this man's teaching? Because they didn't recognize the fact that this is the incarnate son who broke into time from eternity past and present community with the Father and the Spirit. He knew what they knew because his essence was the same as theirs. He was in community for eternity with them and they were shocked. Just going back a few weeks, John 38 to 40. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This community that he came from, this triune community, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the will, he's here to do the will of him who sent me. 1689. Right? I want to... Make sure we are referring to these texts, the 1689, chapter 2, if I can get there. I believe I read these a few weeks ago. But as it refers to the Trinity... In the divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences. Where Jesus came from, the Father, the Word, capital W, the Son, Jesus, and the Spirit. Of one substance, one power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence. Yet, this essence is undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding, the Son is eternally begotten, and the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. You see, this is where this authority comes from. He is God the Son. 
he is God the Son. And the Jews missed it in their blindness and their deafness, referring back to, of course, the Isaiah passages we read before. And this word, Jesus is teaching here, this word that we have divinely inspired by the Spirit, left for us by faithful men who have recorded them. As I said in my point, is the plumb line. The plumb line for assessing all truth and error. So, what is a plumb line, right? You go into, um, what, Nehemiah and Ezra when they're rebuilding the walls and they're using a plumb line to build the walls back around Jerusalem after they are returned from their exile. A plumb line is a measuring tool that determines the precision of a vertical feature, right? You go, if you need to hang a, hang a picture on the wall, you might go and take a... Um, uh, one of those levels, right? It's got the little lines in it with the liquid that kind of turns when it goes. You go get a level when you want to measure something out and even it horizontally, you can get a plumb line, an ancient tool, when you want to measure the straightness of something vertically. So you don't end up with the leaning tower of Pisa, right? You have a straight wall. And so Christ's teaching, his word... Him, capital W, the Word personified, the Word in the flesh, the Word incarnate, and His Word inspired by the Spirit, is this measurement of precision, this plumb line that divides truth from error. Christ and His Word are the single source of authority for faith and salvation. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. That is the authority of this word. That is directly taken, again, from the 1689. Not from me. Not my wonderfully written language. But his words... His words. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth himself. The author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of Now you see, because of the source from which this word comes, being God, means it is inherently, it is inherently authoritative. It is inherently trustworthy. It is inherently accurate. Because of who the source is. Yesterday, last night, I was watching, well, I was watching the football game, and I was scrolling through Twitter, as I probably shouldn't do, and I found a clip of a, I think it was last week's sermon of Andy Stanley. Now, if you remember Andy Stanley, the son of Charles Stanley, you might know that name, kind of, you know, not my cup of tea. Uh, his son, Andy Stanley, is a megachurch pastor somewhere, don't know where. And he started a new sermon series. 
that appears to be called starting points. Now remember, because it's important, Andy Stanley is the one who a few years back basically denied the authority of the Old Testament. He rejected the authority of the Old Testament as the divinely inspired word of God as peace and whole of the Bible. So the starting point sermon that I watched 15 to 20 minutes of in the introduction yesterday was all about how as adults, for many people in this world, the starting point of faith is not the scriptures. Is not the scriptures. Because we have been, in some ways, as he, the way, to paraphrase what he was saying, is basically from our childhood, the way the, t- the scriptures have been taught to us have been poisoned by the teachers. And so, that is not the starting point of faith. And what utter nonsense that is. Because... If we believe the scriptures are the word of God, and if we believe that God is, in essence, perfectly truthful, veracity, to use the word, he has veracity, to use a theological language, truthfulness, then where else do we begin? And what does Paul tell us about where faith comes from? Faith comes from hearing the word of God. That wasn't in my sermon text, but it came up last night. The word of God, what Jesus was teaching, where this source material comes from, it's divinely authoritative. Where else do we begin? Where else do we begin? Number two, to recognize... And to do God's will requires submission and obedience to God. To recognize and to do God's will requires submission and obedience to God. To be conformed into Christ-likeness is an ongoing cycle of submission and obedience. To be a Christian, to be a Christian, is to recognize the authority of God, to submit to Him, and to carry out His commands. To carry out His commands. 17 and 18. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know. This is, this, I, I found this, I had to wrestle with this passage this week. It threw me for a loop. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. To paraphrase this text, Jesus here is saying to serve God rightly would prove and demonstrate that what I am saying is true. And it is from the source that I am claiming it comes from. Think back to the life hacks that you've seen on Facebook, right? To know if it's going to work, you have to do it. You can't just stand there and gawk. You can't just look at and say, that is ridiculous. Where did you get this teaching from? How in the world did he learn this? To serve God rightly would prove and demonstrate that what he is saying, Jesus, is true and from the Father. 
Now, remember, I've mentioned this already, the themes of, of blindness. These themes of blindness and deafness, the closed eyes, the stopped ears that we have, that we have talked about in the past. John, from 5.42 to 47. I believe I preached this text then. But I know that you, this is Jesus speaking to the Jews, to the religious authorities, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. How does he know? I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. That's what he says to them. I have come in the Father's name, whom you do recognize. You know the Father, you know the Scriptures. I have come in his name, and you have not received me. But if another one comes in his name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You see, what Jesus is saying, the one who seeks his own authority, or speaks on his own authority, seeks his own glory. And what is he claiming here of the Jews? The Jews are preoccupied what? With not rightly figuring this out. The Jews... The religious authorities are preoccupied with their own glory. Do not seek, or how can you believe when you receive glory from one another? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. Their authority accuses them. For if you believed Moses... You would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You see, Jesus is here in chapter 7 now saying to them, you have misunderstood your faith. You have misunderstood. You, have, you hold Moses up as your authority, but you are incorrect because Moses points to me. So these religious authorities are not practicing what they are expected to practice. They cannot know that Jesus is the divine authority because their eyes are closed, their ears are stopped, they have been blinded by their own sin and their own glory. They are blinded by their own glory and they are not practicing their own religion the right way. They are not recognizing the authority of Moses because if they did, if they rightly understood the Levitical law, if they rightly understood the first five books of the Bible, if they rightly understood Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the rest of the Old Testament prophets, if they rightly understood the words that they claimed to be authorities of, they would recognize that they point to Jesus. But they are seeking their own glory. And so Jesus says, if you want to do God's will, you must Listen to God. It seems simple, but it's not. Especially with closed eyes, stopped ears, and a dead heart. Their faith, the religious authorities, their faith has been misplaced. Now, if we're thinking... And if you mishear me, it could very much so sound like what I am claiming right now is workspace righteousness. You could think that I am saying, okay, to do God's will and then to be given favor by God means that I have to 
do what he commands. That's not quite it. That's not it. Obedience to command does not save you. Again, John 5 that we just read, Jesus is pointing out what? That their faith is wrong. Their faith is wrong. They do not recognize the Messiah that Moses was pointing to. Their faith is messed up. And you fail if you fail to see if you fail to see that their faith is incorrect, then this is where we get this works-based righteousness. It's not just their practice was wrong, but their practice was wrong because their faith was wrong. And so if we kind of flip that on the head, our works are not a product of us just wanting to be getting our picture put up on God's refrigerator as being obedient, good little kids. Our works are products of a proper faith placed in the proper place. You see, their faith was in the wrong thing. And it produced fruits of disobedience. They stood condemned. Moses condemns them, he says in John 5. Their faith was in the wrong thing and it produces fruits of disobedience. You think of the five solas that the Reformation claimed and reclaimed salvation is by grace alone sola gratia through faith alone sola fide by christ alone solus christus to the glory of god alone soli deo gloria informed by scripture alone you see If our faith is placed in the right spot, if our faith is authentic, if, as Ephesians 1 tells us, we are sealed by the Spirit, indwelt by the Spirit, you cannot help but produce fruits of the Spirit. Works come from a faith that is placed in the one Savior. To quote Spurgeon, faith and works are bound up in the same bundle. I love this. He that obeys God trusts God. And he that trusts God obeys God. He that is without faith is without works. And he that is without works is without faith. Isn't that just the book of James shortened? That is what James says. And what Spurgeon in his pithy way pulls out and shares with us. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to the religious authorities in John 7, or John 7, 17 and 18. Your faith is in the wrong place. Your works are in the wrong place. Put your faith in what I'm saying and you will recognize that it is true. You see, it is self-authenticating. Just like your TikTok life hacks. It is self-authenticating. It proves itself to be true. Now, this true faith then conforms us to the image of Christ. This true faith conforms us to the image of Christ. A few years back, last year, I gave a, 
I was asked to give a sermon or a teaching at the high school chapel on what it means to be image bearers. Now you see I was a special ed teacher. They wanted me to come up and teach on Psalm 139 and kind of talk about how even people with disabilities are made in God's image as revealed in Psalm 139. I've done that many of times and I certainly hold that to be 100% accurate. But knowing I was going to speak to freshmen, to seniors, I didn't listen to them and I changed the whole thing. Now, this idea of image bearing, it is probably one of the hottest phrases in evangelicalism right now, right? When it comes to social justice, when it comes to people against social justice, when it comes to wokeness and those against wokeness. The image of God, that phrase, will be in nearly every single conversation you hear. But nobody ever defines it. Nobody ever defines it. So what does it mean to be an image bearer? Does it mean that I look like Jesus? No. Does it mean that my physical resemblance looks like God? That if God looked in a mirror, and I looked in a mirror, our resemblance would look the same. No. But we wouldn't really ever hear that because no one ever defines these things. To be an image bearer is not your physical features, but it is the characters and qualities that you possess. God possesses attributes. Things about him that make him who he is. He is You can list them off. You know these attributes. He has these incommunicable attributes, right? These attributes he shares with nobody else but himself. Omniscience. Omnipresence. Those omnis when it comes to attributes. He shares with none other. None of us are omniscient. None of us are omnipresent. None of us are those things. Incommunicable. He possesses communicable attributes. Those attributes that he does communicate to us, like love, graciousness, mercy, language. There's a whole study of theology on these things. Being image bearers does not mean that we look like God. It means that we possess qualities that God possesses. Now you see few years back, Lady Gaga wrote these lyrics, I'm beautiful in my way because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way. Don't hide yourself in regret, just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way. And she goes on to this whole song that refers to lifestyles that we know to be sinful. But you see, with this subtle drop of this phrase, I'm beautiful in my way because who makes no mistakes? God makes no mistakes. All of a sudden, society, young people 
are being communicated to that the image that they are currently possessing, who they are, is fine because that's how God made them. And they are image bearers. But you see, you see the problem there, don't you? If we fail to take Genesis 3 into account, we do not understand image bearing. Because we do possess attributes that God has given us. Yes, we do. We are image bearers. But Genesis 3 does what? Taints those image bearing qualities. It taints those characteristics. It doesn't destroy them. It does not erase them. We are still image bearers, even in sin. But our images, the characters, characteristics, and qualities that God possesses have been warped. Have been tainted. So you see, our call is not to remain as we are in the image that we are in in our sinful condition. In our sinful state, we are not on the right track, baby, because we were born that way. You see, you have to see, when it comes to this image bearing and being conformed to an image, in our sinful state, our image bearing is not enough. It doesn't save us. Because I can use language, because I can think and I can love my neighbor, it's not going to save you. Image bearing alone does not save us and it is tainted and warped. And so what does the New Testament call us to do? You see, it is not to remain in our own image, but it is to be conformed and transformed into whose image? Christ's image. You see Romans 8, we love Romans 8.28, but Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to do what? To be conformed to his image. You see, all this conversation about image bearing, though yes, we are image bearers, that will not save us. And you see, we, because we were born whatever way we were born, is not an automatic rites and passage to heaven. The only passage to heaven is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it is by this faith, to go circle back from this rabbit hole I went down, to place our faith in the right person and work seals us with the down payment of the Spirit, which produces in us fruit of obedience, which does what? Conforms us. Away from this warped and tarnished image and into the image of the Son. As believers, as believers sealed by the Holy Spirit, authentic, true believers, works will be produced. Not perfectly. I am not in any way proclaiming a perfection in this life. But our hearts and minds and wills will be transformed into those things that our Lord and Savior loves and desires by his spirit changing us sanctifying us growing us the only way we are on the right 
track as if our image is being conformed to Christ. Number three, lastly, to rightly understand this Savior, the one whom stood up in this temple and the Jews were gawking at because they have no idea how we figured this stuff out, to rightly understand this Savior, to have our faith rooted in the truth, it must be rooted in the Scriptures. 19 to 24, to finish this off. Here is what Jesus says, now pulling the law, pulling Scripture out and presenting it to them. And again, showing that they have misunderstood their Scriptures. Their faith has been placed in the wrong thing. He, or sorry, has not Moses given you the law? Yet, none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Why are you seeking to kill me when you are the ones not keeping it? The crowd answers. Now things are starting to get heated, right? This is what I was referring to last week. You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you, right? Like utter nonsense. How could you say someone's, no one's trying to kill you? You're demonic. You're, you're demon possessed. You're a lunatic. Jesus responds, I did one work, referring probably to John 5 and the healing of the man at the pool on the Sabbath, because this is the nitty gritty. I did one thing, one work, and you marveled at it. You gawked. You stood and stared and wondered. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that that is from Moses, but from the fathers, right? Abraham, that came with him. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. You see, here's the, again, the nitty-gritty. Jesus is saying, on the Sabbath, I healed a man, made him well. He was a lame beggar sitting on the side of the pool. And I healed him like that. And over and over and over and over again, when you have a boy born on the Sabbath, eight days later, you circumcise him on the Sabbath. That's okay for you to do. He's saying, that's okay, but it's not okay that I did this. Now you see the Jews are, are making this argument that to perform this ceremonial cleansing, right, this was a passageway into ethnic Israel. To be part of ethnic Israel, you had to be circumcised. So what Jesus is pointing out and what the Jews would claim is that to be circumcised on the eighth day takes priority because it is more important for this person to be ceremonially cleansed and brought into the community than it is to not do so and have this person not brought into the community. That's their argument. And so Jesus says... You, you make that argument. I healed this man who is not part of the community because he's a lame, dirty, unclean beggar. I cleaned him. And he didn't clean him just physically, which he did. He cleansed him and healed him. But he ceremonially cleansed him because now this man can again retake life in Jewish culture. Before, he could not. He was an outcast. He was unclean. He wasn't a part. And so Jesus is saying, I cleaned this man physically and spiritually, culturally, however you want to phrase it, and yet you condemn me. You do this week after week after week with newborn baby boys who are born. 
And he said, you're angry with me? If, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses is not broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Not just ceremonially, but physically as well. And he says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You see, Jesus here rebukes them for, again, their misuse of Scripture. Their misunderstanding of what he was doing, their misplaced faith. And as a result of this rebuke, as a result of this teaching and response, people start to say, you're a lunatic. Nobody's trying to kill you. And then we're going to read later in chapter 7, I don't know who's preaching this part, but later in 7... Sure enough, they're trying to kill him. Someone's trying, someone's after him. You see, our study of Scripture, our study of Scripture is a means of grace for a reason. Us sitting in front of the Word, reading it, praying through it, letting the Spirit implant it into our hearts and minds, us gathering to hear the Word taught and preached. You see, these things are means of grace for a reason. It guides us. These words inform us. These words steer us. They buffer us from error. They protect us. They shape and mold our faith. And if we misunderstand, if we misapply, if we don't get this right... We're no different than these Jews who've misunderstood the scripture, misplaced their faith, and kill the Messiah. One of my favorite podcasts right now, Cultish, it's called Cultish, and it goes through different cults, Mormonism, all sorts of stuff. Talked about the Enneagram, I mean, all sorts of cults and, and different pieces of, of cultish, demonic kind of communities. You know what they all have in common? Every single one of them, misuse of the scripture. Every last one. Every last one. You think of the craziest cults. I mean, southern Indiana is a hub of cult behavior, of cult life, with Brother Branham and the, whatever the big church is there. It's a hub and you see all of these cults come from misuse of the scriptures. There is damage that comes from misunderstanding. You see, the Jews misunderstand the scripture and they murder the Messiah. Psalm 119, I'm not going to read the whole thing, we'll be here for days. But Psalm 119, you read through all of the segments of Psalm 119, and what do they all say? Basically, order my feet by your word, Lord. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep, what? His testimonies, his word, who seek him with their whole heart, who do no wrong, who walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently 
You see, you read all of Psalm 119, you read Psalm 1, you read these beautiful passages, and what do we find? God's Word is our light in dark places. It is what leads and steers us. It is what safeguards us and buffers us. It is what shapes and, well, the Spirit uses it to shape and mold us. It is our food. It is our food nourishment and without his word we will just like a man who is hungry with no food we will die so we must we must we must rightly divide the word we must rightly come to the word and be fed and be fed because Our conforming into the image of Christ does not come from our own theories and our own wisdom and our own thoughts. But no, like Jesus, teaching with authority and command because his source is God. So like us, our source must be God's word, which is inherently truthful. Because the source, the author, is God himself, who is inherently and by essence truthful. You see, we must, we must be fed by the word. Because it is the source of all things, faith and salvation, as the 1689 chapter 1 verse 1 tells us. It is the source, the infallible word of God. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your special revelation in which through your scriptures you revealed to us our fallen state and our need for redemption in this Christ man. So Lord, this morning, as we leave from here, may we be fed by your word. May our minds and hearts return to your word so that we may receive your word. And again, be fed, and again, be conformed and shaped and molded into the image of our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.